0: I've been coerced into watching tonight's
1: movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history.
0: Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Tony Black. Hi Tony, how
1: are you? I'm pretty good, Duncan. It's been uh, It's been a bit of a while since I've been on Primitive Culture, so it's nice to be back. It has. It's been a good few episodes. We need to be getting
0: you in more regularly, I think, in, in future. It's, it's been quite a uh, sort of disrupted time one way or another, I guess. And, and you've been busy with books coming out of your ears, I think, you know, finishing off one book and starting on another. Haven't you? I've been busy with work projects. So um, good to be able to find a time to uh, sit down and, and chat about Star Trek. We did have a chat on your show as well, of course. Um, so we've podcasted together
1: more recently, mm. but not for Primitive Culture. Yeah, we talked a bit about the new uh, Star Trek Picard show. Which was a quite quite fun on my podcast. Make it so for the we made this network. But yeah, it's uh, it's, we said that we said there that there were there were points where it felt like we were on primitive culture. <laughs> so it's nice to be back <laughs> doing this again. You know, back like the old days. It's the kind of nostalgia factor. <laughs>
0: and funny we should be talking about nostalgia because that's a theme that I think might be likely to come up in today's discussion. This is a, a special anniversary episode, I suppose, of sorts. Um, we did a special episode for episode 47, 47 obviously being a key number in the Star Trek universe. Now we've hit episode 79. Uh, and I thought we couldn't let that go by without using it as a kind of opportunity to mark something rather special, which is the 79 episodes give or take, depending on whether you count the cage and, you know, if the menagerie is one or two and whatever. But generally speaking, the 79 recognised episodes of the original series. Now, on Primitive Culture, usually we're looking at... um aspects of our own culture, whether they're historical events, whether they're uh, literary output, um, whether they're movies, you know, whatever it is, and how that feeds into Star Trek. In this episode, I thought we'd have a look at how the original series, how those kind of original 79 stories have fed into everything that's followed in the 50 odd years uh, succeeding them. Because really, you know, obviously, if it weren't for the original series, we wouldn't have Next Gen and DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise and, you know, so on and so forth two more uh, series just been announced uh, are in the pipeline today, you know, kind of endless Star Trek, it feels like. And sometimes it can feel like maybe those later tracks are leaning a bit too heavily on the original series as a touchstone other times they're obviously very much going their own way kind of trying to beat a new path do their own thing um but one way or another um whatever your feelings about tos whether it's you know at the top or the bottom of your kind of ranking of all the series we kind of have to acknowledge that those 79 episodes laid a lot of the groundwork
1: for what was to follow you can see it across all of star trek really as, especially the, the 90s era stuff although you know you are seeing that nowadays you are seeing that with you know things like Discovery which are uh, particularly even even to the, the idea of taking some of the 60s style episode titles you know that you could imagine being on the original series uh, the, the, the effect of those 79 episodes even though the, you know the, the franchise has evolved and morphed and changed in certain ways that's still there you know that core idea and what those what those episodes were trying to do you know the tone the style you know the 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 point of a better term the mission statement remains and it it does filter down it's just it just happens to be that the the year has changed that the styles of storytelling change Um, and obviously now there's a big argument as to whether some of the newer era star trek is in line with what the original idea was, but then you had that exact same argument when something like Deep Space Nine came out, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a constant argument that keeps going round and round. But I think in all of Star Trek beyond that original series, you couldn't have made those shows in the way they were without that original template there
0: absolutely and i mean i think actually if we look at it in some ways every iteration of star trek has engaged with the original series one way or another maybe what's changed is the way that it's engaging um maybe less so with picard i mean we could find examples even with picard to be honest there are the kind of usual in jokes there are the usual kind of um you know a bottle of saurian brandy or whatever it is you know there are these little kind of nuggets um i suppose what i'm interested in for this episode is not so much the in jokes it's not so much the kind of um, um, Little background references, the kind of set dressing. It's not so much these kind of things. It's the more sort of, more the kind of meat of it. Do you know what I mean? The the sense in which the original series has really been a touchstone for those later treks, even as they were kind of trying to chart their own course. So maybe we could start by having a think about the next generation, because obviously the next generation uh, came out in 1987. You, you know, twenty odd years after the original series, very much trying to do something different, but at the same time, this was a Star Trek that was also conceived by Gene Roddenberry. So as much as you had, you know, you could say Picard is the sort of anti-Kirk, you know, instead of this kind of uh, man of action, this kind of ladies' man, you've got this sort of intellectual, uh, you know, an older man, a bald man. uh, Not, I mean, as it turned out, Patrick Stewart did become a massive sex symbol, but certainly I don't think that was the intention going into that series. So in some ways, you could say Next Gen is an attempt to differentiate itself from the original series to kind of rewrite some of the rules. I mean, famously, we had the Roddenberry rule of no conflict from next gen onwards, which is very different to the original series, which is basically just constant conflict between uh, Kirk, Spock and McCoy. But in many other ways, I think you can see early next gen in particular, almost feels like a continuation uh, of the original series, even down to things like the sets when they beam down to planets, you know, rather than uh, doing location filming, you get those kind of planets, which are on those sort of lit, uh, you know, they look sort of like theatre sets, just as as many of the planets in the original series do, with the kind of weird lighting and everything. Something about many of those kind of early Next Gen episodes in particular, something like Justice, if you look at even the costuming, for example, in Justice, is just straight out of the kind of original series uh, kind of playbook in a sense. So it's strange in a way that we think of this series as being so so different. We think of these these two series as, as as representing very different kinds of Star Trek, and yet at the same time, there's definitely a lot kind of carrying over. Certainly in that initial period.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think we think that way because it does evolve into something a little bit different, or a little bit you know more of you know the, the particularly as it edges into the '90s of a different era. But you know those first couple of seasons, particularly the first two seasons are very, very, the original series, stylistic. You know, you like you say, those sets, I think of things like The Last Outpost, you know, which is all based on one of those kind of sets, or, or especially Skin of Evil, you know, which is the classic Tashiar dies episode. Um, and there's plenty of others in that series where, you know, partly as a cost-saving measure, you know, I mean... I I defer to you know Earl Grey and lots of other podcasts that are more knowledgeable about this, but I fully imagine the budget went up to a to an extent with TNG as time went on and they had a little bit more money to play with, which maybe allowed them to do occasional bits of location filming and things like that. But it certainly looks like it's more expensive as time goes on. So I think that there are, there are certain you know financial reasons why, but I think also stylistically, I think. You know, Gene Roddenberry's interesting in the sense that yes, he wanted the next generation to be different and to be more evolved, almost as if you know, the twenty third century they weren't quite evolved enough, but by the twenty fourth they would be. You know, they were they were the, they were the utopian kind of humans, but at the same time, he he still wants to tell similar kinds of stories, except he he wants to frame it through the prism of that these people aren't. Aren't f- aren't internally having that same kind of conflict, but it's strange how he, in just twenty years, he changes a bit in terms of that, and that he wants to portray, you know, Picard and Riker and and Data and all these people as being these kind of evolved humans, but but he wants it almost feels like TNG at first wants to have its cake and eat it, and that's why he only really I think starts to for the whole, for the most part really improve and take off once. Gets a bit more in touch with its humanity, I suppose, in a way, and it starts to tell more maybe, maybe, maybe through Michael Pillar's heavy involvement, series season three onwards. But it starts to tell stories that have you know a lot of those TOS concepts, but also has a lot of particular character based heart to them and kind of warmth as well. I suppose that's mm. what a lot of the you know, when we think of the kind of
0: pillar filler scenes, these kind of um almost incidental, almost kind of soap opera scenes that we get. I mean, I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but just kind of interpersonal uh, stuff, basically, between the characters. That really, I think, is when Next Gen becomes the show that everyone fell in love with, if you know what I mean, because it is about that sense of family. It is about these characters. It's about that kind of warmth. And maybe you're right, you know, so Picard, particularly in those early years, feels quite cool and aloof. And the other characters don't particularly... They, they don't feel cool to the same extent, but they maybe don't draw you in quite as much. Deanna Troy would be a good example. I mean, early Deanna Troy, Marina Sirtis has talked about this, you know, uh, they just weren't sort of getting that character. And she said she went to a convention fairly early on, I think. Uh, and she said, someone said to her, you know, oh, oh we love you. We love Marina. Marina's great. Uh, she seems like, you know, a load of fun, but Deanna Troy is really dull, you know, <laughs> and kind of what can we do? They had the same thing with Dax in DS9, I think in a way they kind of, they started to bring more of Terry Farrell into Dax to give her a bit more personality somehow because they weren't quite sure how to write interestingly these kind of female characters in particular often weren't quite uh, sure how to write them and maybe that in itself is a legacy of the original series I mean obviously the way you write femininity in the 1960s was very kind of stylised and quite limited in some ways. And I think Next Gen was kind of trying to do something different, um, you know, by having these these three women on the bridge, one of them in the security role. But at the same time, in some ways, never quite, it, it took a while to learn how to, if arguably they ever did, you know, to work out how to serve those characters. So you had, you know, two of them leaving after the first year, obviously, because they weren't um all that happy with how things were working out for them. So I, I suppose there are a lot of kind of challenges there. I mean, I think it's absolutely, it's interesting to think of kind of Roddenberry's involvement from the beginning uh, with Next Gen and what, what he personally was kind of bringing over. I mean, one thing that occurs to me uh, is the character of Q. In some ways, if you think of Q, certainly in early Next Gen, he does feel very much like a character who could have been in the original series. You, you know, this kind of slightly, you know, otherworldly kind of mercurial um, I don't know, just sort of, I mean, it's a kind of wacky character in a sense. Do you know what I mean? It's It doesn't fit in the sort of more rational, scientific, science fiction-y kind of Star Trek box. Um And you could say as Q sort of developed over the years, they kind of, you know, they they um softened the edges on him a lot. Do you know what I mean? They developed him as more of a kind of, for want of a better word, human being. They developed him as a character, as opposed to as a kind of cutout do you know what i mean if you think about q in farpoint versus q later on in next gen and even going into voyager there's a real sense that that character has been kind of shaped and molded into a different sort of personality in a way with the kind of changing times and the different kind of expectations of of tv and what star trek was doing
1: yeah because because i think roddenberry originally like imagines him as this kind of Ultimate sort of god, god trickster figure, you know, because he's very much in the in the Loki kind of mould, and he fits with things, you know, characters like. In fact, um, I was going to say Trilane. In in, in the uh, tie-in novel continuity, they are Trilane is part of the Q continuum. So there is there is an attempt to tie in in some of these novels, which I know aren't canon, but. Things like the uh, the Angry God in the Final Frontier, and you know Q and Tree Lane, all these kind of people, and and they because they are a sort of, of a piece. They're sort of of the same Roddenberryish idea that he was he was fascinated by gods and by you know worship in terms of religion and these kind of things, and he brought. He, he, but it seemed like he was. Very distrust. He was very distrustful of those kind of characters. So all of his, all of his gods in in often in the in uh, t o s r fakes or their tricksters or their charlatans, and that's something that with Q, he's not quite exactly the same as a character like Tree But he's at the beginning, he's far more arch and far more crafty. And then as the as the series goes on, and maybe Roddenberry's influence lessens, like you say, Q almost becomes a little bit more like that classic thing that Star Trek does with aliens in that they they try and explore humanity through those characters, you know, through, they, through like, obviously, you know, the, the classic examples are Spock, it was the template, and then, you know, Data, Odo, Seven of Nine, all these different characters. And, you know, in a way, they do that with Q. They do that with Q as it goes on. But the, the DNA of that character is squarely from the 60s. It just happens to be through more of that, like you say, that human 90s, 80s, 90s prism, especially when you get to Voyager and he's basically having a family,
0: (laughs) you know? Mm, Get all the Q yeah, the whole Q extended family coming along for the ride. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And we're much more by that point interested in... When Q turns up, I mean, if you think of when Q turns up in Next Gen, it's to do something, you, you know, say to introduce the crew to the Borg. And Q is there as a sort of um, catalyst in a sense, or a kind of, you, you know, he's kind of shifting the pieces around but it's not the story is not really about him as time goes on I guess you get you know is it Deja Q where he gets turned into a human I suppose that's the kind of key point where suddenly the story the story is about Q Q is the character that we're interested in he's kind of in a sense the hero of the story on one level Um and that kind of interest in him not not just as a mechanism for creating drama for our characters but as a kind of character in his own right definitely is is one of those things that kind of shifts and I, I think I think it's not unfair to say that is a shift away from the way that the original series kind of would have played that character in some ways. I mean, one of the things that struck me about, you know, very early in Next Gen, of course, is we actually have a direct sequel as well, you know, with the the Naked Time and the Naked Now. I've always thought that was a very strange thing to do in a way, if you were trying to differentiate your show from what had gone before, to literally, you know, almost from the get-go, give this kind of massive callback episode. And I mean, for me, I- I've never loved that episode, particularly, uh, it, the next gen one. I mean, because I think it just sort of, it feels a little bit like a knockoff, but it, it's interesting that, you know, at that very early stage, that was something that they obviously decided to do it can't be that they didn't have enough ideas do you know what i mean they at such an early stage they must have had plenty of ideas going around for what they could do with this new show why go back and essentially almost kind of remake an episode of the original series in a way that draws attention to the fact that this is not the original series. Because that's what everyone was saying at the time was, you know, oh, it's not Star Trek anymore. If it's not Kirk, Spock and McCoy, then it's not Star Trek. And Next Gen was very much trying to say, well, you know, this is Star Trek. And I suppose maybe that episode is doing that in a very literal way. It's literally saying, look, we can do the same episode you watched 20 years ago.
1: But I th- but I think that's almost the point in that they, were, they, they weren't sure that they could tell Star Trek stories in a different way and that they... They put. I mean, you know, the naked now obviously is that direct sequel. But then you only have to look at like where no one has gone before, which is it's it's not a, an exactly a remake of um, where no man has gone before, but it's certainly playing in a similar wheelhouse. You know, a super being sort of comes on the ship, transports them into you know, god knows how far away, and then somebody with mind powers and that kind of thing. So it's a similar idea. And then you've got something like, you know, you could almost imagine the battle being a TOS episode as well in that Kirk faces you know a former commander who he was you know v- has got a, a a past with and all this kind of thing you know and then even down to once you in- once they introduce the holodeck and the holodeck episode and arguably the first one is the big goodbye you start they start to essentially transplant the original series you know gambit of they go down to a planet and it's cowboys and it's nazis and it's romans and they put it in a in a construction within the ship, and they allow them to play out all these fantasy stories, which, you know, obviously Dixon Hill is the first one, but then you get, obviously, Sherlock Holmes, and you get all of these different things, and the holodeck episode becomes a real staple of that era of Star Trek. But that is essentially a modernised version of those original series ideas of, you know, the duplicated human civilizations. you know, where they would go to a planet, and, yeah, there's a Nazi race and all this kind of thing, which was really daft. And the holodeck is the way of sort of... Making that have more sense, allowing those characters to play these different roles and enter these different fantasy worlds without it being, you know, because by the 80s and 90s, audiences were a little bit more savvy to go, well, that's, that's a bit far fetched, isn't it? What well, they go down to a planet and they're all Romans, exactly like human, you know, Earth Romans or something, you know what I mean? Whereas by then, audiences were a little bit more like, well, we can buy it if it's within a construct of a piece of technology and they're playing roles and they're, you know, there's a level of theatre to it. So, you know, they, they very early on they have a lot of these stories that could easily be TOS stories, but they're trying to frame them in this new, um, ut- you know, utopian Star Trek context. So it, it, it's a weird disjunct, you know, in those early seasons. And then you've got things like the Child, haven't you? Which was, um, I think that was originally meant for Phase Two, which was the 1970s aborted TV series, uh, which would have been the sequel series to the Next Generation, uh, to the original series. So. Yeah, there's, there's, it still feels like they can't quite let go of TOS in the early days of TNG. Absolutely. And
0: I think looking at the holodeck that way is actually quite instructive. I mean, in some ways, you might think the holodeck is what differentiates 90s Trek from, or kind of, you know, late 80s, 90s Trek from the original series, because that's the thing that, you you know, next-gen DS9 Voyager, I mean, particularly next-gen and Voyager sort of felt like they were leaning quite heavily on the holodeck as a way to do those kind of uh escapist episodes. And you know, sometimes more successfully than others. I think a bad holodeck episode kind of lingers, uh, in the consciousness in a certain way. But the holodeck, of course, was basically taken out as the animated series. I mean, they called it, I think they called it the rec room. Is that right? In the animated series? I think that, uh, it had a yeah. different name, but they basically, mm. they did basically invent the holodeck there. Which brings up, I mean, we we jumped straight to Next Generation, but of course the most direct uh, continuation of the original series was the animated series. And, you know, people will sort of argue back and forth about whether it's canon and whether it isn't and so on. I mean, my understanding is that basically it pretty much is.
1: Well, Akiba Goldsman has just come out and said it is, apparently, in an interview with well, you god So apparently, <laughs> yeah, it is now. As mm. far as he's concerned, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah.
0: And, and, and from Discovery onwards, they've been dropping in references to the the animated series that kind of at least canonize individual elements of it i mean the 2009 film was was very influenced by yesteryear in in terms of some of the design and and so on but the animated series of course absolutely you know continuing the voyages uh of the original series um and i was just going to say however you sort of want to to square it i think the the most popular view is the animated series is basically year four of that five-year mission and you know Year five, I guess, probably exists out in the novels or, or or wherever. But the animated series, of course, did also do a number of direct sequels. I mean, they did a triple sequel. They did a mud sequel. You know, they again were kind of picking up on this sense of, um, you know, trying to recapture what you loved about the original Star Trek, but in a slightly different form, in a shorter, you know, more family friendly package. Um, etc. But but very much kind of, I mean, I suppose there the emphasis was as much as possible on continuity, albeit you could now have, you know, flying dragon monsters and a cat person on the bridge and, and stuff that just wouldn't really have been possible to do kind of uh, back in the day when you were, you know, filming live action original series, but um very much a kind of continuation of it. The holodeck, though, I think is something that it's very interesting because you're right. It has its roots in some of those early, uh, original series episodes. Um, and yet it kind of takes it, it kind of does take it in a slightly different direction to the point where, you know, we get to a certain point and it's possible to go and see Star Trek on the holodeck, effectively. I mean, that's what we get in Relics for the first time, you know, uh, with Scotty uh, going back onto the bridge of that ship. The first of many returns in later Star Trek to the kind of iconography of that bridge in particular. And then, of course, you know, by the time you get to the end of Enterprise, uh, it's kind of flipped on its head. It's like the whole, the series Enterprise is the holodeck, uh, you know, within the next generation somehow. So it's that kind of weird sense, again, though, that Star Trek itself can kind of be playing out on holodeck somewhere.
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it, actually. You know, definitely in something like Relics, which is intentionally a callback to the to the original series by bringing in Scutty. Uh, and, and it's interesting that they did that. And they, you know, they waited six seasons. Obviously, you had McCoy in a very, very old McCoy in Encounter at Farpoint, which feels a little bit like their way of, you know, trying to ease audiences in by going, look, look. Bones is in it. Look, he's he's here. <laughs> okay, at one of them's here. And then obviously, <laughs> you know, sparking unification and you know, there's there's quite there's you know the fact they have three uh, significant characters from the original series, three of the the, the biggest characters. You know, the only one being that mis- really missing of the of the bigger characters in that show being um Kirk, and obviously he turns up then in generations. So. Mm. You know, the movie. So it's. Plus, we get Sarek
0: as well. I mean, in some ways, I would say the most successful of those, uh, imported characters in terms of, I mean, I, I like all those episodes, but I think, you know, in terms of what they do with the character, there's an example of taking an original series character. And an animated series character for what it's worth, and you know, really bringing them in, and it's not—it's much more than just a cameo. I mean, as much you know, Relics is more than just a cameo, but I feel like sarac is the one where they really uh, expand on that character and kind of give us more. Partly because we didn't have a huge amount about that character, but um, again, absolutely, you know, bringing in bringing someone over from the original series and sort of saying, okay, it's, you know, it's 20 years later, what, you know, what can we find out about this person? Obviously, it's much more time has passed in Star Trek's universe, but what can we find out about this character? But it's interesting, because I think when they were writing the episode, Sarak, there was this real controversy about whether they could use the word Spock, because they got into this point where, despite, I suppose, in the very early stages of Next Gen being it seems quite happy to like throw around this kind of original series stuff. At a certain point, it seems like it became kind of uh, forbidden almost. It was like, you know, we don't want to um, contaminate our own brand with kind of references to the original series. And so they they are used quite sparingly, I suppose. Um, you, you know, these episodes that you mentioned there, you know, it's, it's certainly not every other week. Um, and they do make an effort, I think, to make them work. I mean, I think something like Relics, it really works. Something like Unification, you know, Certainly they handle, uh, bringing Spock into next gen really well. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of other series where, you know, where you've had a spin-off series and that hasn't maybe gone down as well. I mean, for example, Frasier, you know, very phenomenally successful spin-off from Cheers. There were a few episodes where they brought in characters from Cheers. And to me, it never quite, those were some of the weaker Frasier episodes, because suddenly the whole episode becomes about someone who belongs in a different show. And it's very hard to work out how to make them fit. Now, I suppose with Relics, they kind of use that to their advantage, because the whole episode is about the fact that he doesn't fit uh, in the next gen universe and how everything's changed and everything's very different. And with kirk in generations again i suppose there's that kind of conflict there's that sense of you know kirk's values and picard's values and kirk's kind of attitude and personality versus picard's you know um they're partly they're two different people but they're also kind of emblematic of these two different kinds of stories these two different kind of um you know worlds almost um Spock in a way makes sense because Spock is probably the most next-gen character in the original series, if you know what I mean. Being a Vulcan, being very logical, being very you know, he's the most kind of perfect character in the original series. And insofar as next gen is this kind of ship full of perfect people, uh, he almost, you know, fits in quite well there somehow.
1: But and, and that but I think you've hit the nail on the head, re- really, there, in that it, it when they do this, they, they try and put it into a context of attempting to do something different. With these characters, you know, and that, like you say, with Sarek and the fact he has this disease and you start to see his decay, you know, that's that's an episode that is about that character, but it it does it in such a really tender, interesting way. And then when you get to, obviously unification pays that off partly, but it's also fundamentally Spock is very different. You know, they don't, they don't just try and bring him back as like a Starfleet captain and you know, he's Spock and he's doing, they say, you know, he's changed, you know, a long time has passed and he's now on this quest to reunify Vulcan and Romulus. And it's a very, it's a very different kind of guy while still being, you know, Spock. And then you get all these lovely interactions with particularly him, Picard and Data, but. It, it it is good, and like you say, with, with Scotty, the very the very fact that he's he's been lost in this transporter accident, and he is still the same guy, is exactly the point. But that episode's as much about servicing Geordie as a character as it is about Scotty in some ways. So they manage to actually, you know, and, and frame Geordie's position as an engineer and as this kind of guy. So it's they, when they bring these characters in, they do it in a particular way that isn't just. You know, plucking a character out of, you know, 2260 or whatever, you know, the original series timeline and putting them in and having do it jar. They do it in a clever way. And I suppose it's why we should almost, you know, we're, we're not to get too current, but when people are a little bit concerned with the new Picard show that maybe he's not the same Picard and that kind of thing, we ought to look back at some of these examples and say, well, actually, they didn't, they did this. 25, 30 years ago, (laughs) you know, and they took these characters that we knew and we thought we knew from a particular era of Star Trek, you know, the original series, and they reconceptualized them and we brought that into our hearts, you know? So, and and I think that's always been something that they've done. And it's, and now they're starting, they are starting to slowly do that with the next generation era now, with it being another 25, 30 years on. So it's interesting how, you know, we might be able to have this kind of conversation about next generation. In thirty years, in a few years' time, you know what I mean, and and it be the same kind of thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly as the Picard series, you know, goes on, and we and we see more next generation characters. Potentially, that's something that's going to be. You know those are questions that are going to be raised because we've seen how much Picard has changed. I mean, uh, as we're recording, uh, we haven't yet encountered uh, Riker and Troy, but I know they're they're coming up pretty soon. I mean, we we have seen other kind of legacy characters one way or another. Seven of Nine, of course, you know another legacy character coming back. You know, recognisably the same, and yet kind of the same but different. And I suppose that's the kind of that's the touchstone for all of these choices. Really, is is the same but different. And I think certainly as Next Gen went on, they kind of really nailed how to bring back these legacy characters or bring back these kind of legacy elements, but with the confidence of saying, okay, we know what we do. We know what our own identity is and we know how to kind of incorporate them into what we are so that it doesn't become, you know, Frasier suddenly becoming an episode of Cheers or, or attempting to and kind of going off the rails. Um, I mean, I think they also, in certain Circumstances did that in more subtle uh, or or more kind of complicated ways. I mean, my favorite, I've said this many times, probably my favorite episode of Next Gen uh, is Darmok. And Darmok is absolutely a remake, essentially, of Arena uh, on one level. You know, you've got the same. Uh, basic setup, these two captains down on the planet. And yet, while you'd expect, the, the everyone is expecting that it's going to be a remake of, of Arena and that the two of them are going to have to fight it out. And Picard basically says, I'm not doing that. He throws the knife on the floor uh, and refuses to participate. Whereas Kirk, I mean, Kirk wasn't, you know, it wasn't his idea. He wasn't exactly happy about it, but he did basically go along with the like fighting the Gorn uh, in the original series where for the original series that episode was all about Kirk's kind of brilliance as a strategist and and his kind of um you, you know kind of manly uh, ability to fight this alien even even an alien who seemed um much kind of bigger and stronger than him and so on you know when Next Gen does that episode, it's so quintessentially Next Gen. You know, it's about kind of sharing our cultural history. It's about, uh, bridging, uh, gaps between cultures, about kind of understanding each other, about communicating. It's, you know, it's basically a kind of exercise in diplomacy. Um, and I just think it's a brilliant episode that kind of basically, uh, takes something so iconic from the original series and then, Uh, it almost sort of disassembles it and puts it all back together in a kind of next-gen storyline so that it's recognizably got this kind of echo of this previous story, but it's so much its own thing. I mean, it's, it's so perfectly its own thing that it is, you know, as I said, for my money, the kind of, if you needed to show one episode of next-gen someone to give them a sense of what that show is all about, that's the one for me anyway that I would show them.
1: Yeah. It sort of crystallizes both sort of approaches really, and that it, it drills down, I think, to kind of what, I feel like it. Darmok drills down to kind of what people want Star Trek to be in many ways, you know, particularly, you know, the, the people who come, come to Star Trek for the philosophical, cultural, you know, aspects of learning about who we are and different cultures and that kind of thing. I feel like Darmok is that quintessential kind of episode that blends the TNG and the TOS style really well and you know it is I always remember it being and we may have talked about this before on this podcast I don't remember but I always remember when I was when I was young and I was really I loved Star Trek as much for all the space battles and all those exciting episodes I used to find Darmok a little bit more hard work but the older I've got the more I appreciate it it's just a really great piece of drama and I think that's because it is really true to the principle of what I think what what really works in terms of star trek and and the richness of this franchise and what it can be but it does but it does like you say it it essentially remakes arena but it does it in a in a far more it's a a different style i don't even know how to characterize it really in terms of the next generation but it's more of a maybe it's a bit more of a philosophical kind of style maybe it is more of a learned you know, careful, measured kind of style that maybe befits Picard, as opposed to you know, you couldn't you couldn't have made Darmok in quite the same way with the character of Kirk. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe a lot of it comes down to you know the leaders of these kind of series, the captains, and how those characters sort of you know all of all of whom are variations on Kirk and variations on the the the, the model that Roddenberry created. You know, well, initially I suppose created in Pike as well. Really, you know, that kind of traditional kind of captain. And they're all variations on that in various different ways, but they, as characters, sort of, I think, drive in many ways the kind of plots that you get. I mean, particularly on Next Generation and Voyager. Maybe it's slightly different on DS Nine with Cisco, but um, because that's much more of a tapestry of characters and a world building within that. Whereas on Voyager and Next Generation, it is a ship and a crew, and they're off having these kind of things. So, and Enterprise. But yeah, it's just it's interesting and how, in many ways, I think Darmok becomes one of those episodes that inspires others as well. It's sort of like a chain reaction. I feel like you have episodes of Voyager and Enterprise that might not have existed without Darmok, you know, even if they're not quite as successful. Absolutely. I mean, I I think you're right. Certainly,
0: so much of that episode is about Picard. You know, Picard, I've said this before, Picard is the only captain of any of the Star Trek series, I think, who could... Succeed in that situation for a start because he's almost certainly the only one who can uh, summarize the Epic of Gilgamesh off the top of his head. <laughs> you know, it's kind of he's he's definitely the right man for the job. So it, it certainly yeah. works on that level. I mean, Kirk, and we we could talk a bit about this maybe when we come on to talk about some of the other series and some of the other characters. I mean, Riker is a bit of a Kirk character, I suppose. Uh, in many ways, you know, people often said Janeway was a bit of a kind of female Kirk. These kind of more slightly more. Ac- I mean, not exactly action hero, but there's a quality. I mean, I suppose both Kirk and Pike have that kind of cowboy quality about them. And the original series has that kind of cowboy feel about it in some ways, you know, as much as it's also influenced by uh, nautical, you know, literature and history. And, you know, there are other kind of influences feeding in. But certainly Kirk has that kind of all-American swagger, I suppose, Um, in a way that Picard is is very much uh, a very different kind of leader. I mean, other Next Gen episodes, I think, sort of pick up on other elements of the sort of um kind of cultural baggage, in a way, of the original series in different ways. I mean, Lower Decks, another fantastic episode, is very much a kind of response to the red shirt trope that her, I assume was something that became... um noticed or became a kind of familiar concept once the original series kind of went into reruns not so much when it was in production or when it was being viewed you know week after week but i guess when people were kind of watching these episodes back to back or kind of becoming more familiar with them uh you know watching them again and again people started to notice this kind of you you know the regularity with which these red shirts were dying and i feel like lower decks is very much a sort of um it's almost a kind of postmodern commentary on that, somehow basically saying, you know, uh, okay, we're gonna find out who, you know, who are these kind of they're not always nameless, but kind of basically personality uhless characters. Let's meet some of them, let's give them a personality. And then of course, heartbreakingly at the end of that episode, let's kill one of them. Uh, because, you know, frankly, that's what happens to the red shirts, but somehow you didn't expect it to happen once you got to know them once you know once they did have a personality and a life and dreams and hopes and you know regrets and all these kind of things that make a rounded character
1: yeah it's been a long time since i've watched that episode actually so it's it's one for me to revisit but it so i feel it's almost telling that the the next new star trek series we're going to get is called lower decks and it's a it's a it's about these kind of the 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 not necessarily pre- specifically the red shirts but it's about these characters who are sort of working in the bowels of a starship and they never they're not the they're not the senior brass you know they're not the people in the conference room like the casts we used to So, and it's interesting how we're going to see that from a comedy perspective, really. But we're going to see that from the perspective of those characters who, you know, like you say, TOS sort of threw away with abandon. You know, the 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 classic red shirt trope. You know, the amount of death (laughs) came out. You just wouldn't, you just wouldn't want to be on a starship unless you were like senior staff because your chances of survival are pretty slim. And I think it's because they, you know, they didn't back when they were making that original series. I think it was you, you the, the way that the stories were told you needed you know to throw a crew member in jeopardy and for it to have no real consequence you know to you know accept for to, as an instigation point for a lot of the time for these characters and that's why you know when they when they do that with Tasha in Skin of Evil in TNG, it's a bit of a shocker because she's not a red shirt. You know, that's the kind of thing you could expect happening to a redshirt when Armist does that. But no, actually, it's a main character. And it's that's why it's still one of the most surprising, you know, twists, I think, in any Star Trek episode, because they port that sort of sort of thing in and and, and deliver it on a on a significant character we followed. So that in itself, you know, shows how we, TNG sort of evolving the model and being a bit more by the time you get to Lower Decks especially, being a bit more reflective on some of these original series tropes, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And kind of, again, you know, remaking them in its own image somehow, in as much as, I mean, the the theme that seems to be coming out of this is kind of character and kind of, you know, creating these kind of rounded characters, even doing that, you know, first of all, doing that with a character like Q, who, as we said, is very much a kind of original series, uh, you you know, potentially a kind of one or two-dimensional character from the original series becomes a kind of three-dimensional person somehow. And even doing it with those, uh you, you know, with those kind of almost unnamed kind of supernumerary characters uh, as well. I mean, in some ways, it's not just Next Gen that did that, though. You could say that with the original series movies as well, there was an element of that, you know, particularly with someone like Kirk. I mean, not to say that Kirk isn't a kind of rounded character in the original series, but the original series movies kind of... um deepen him they 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 and they chip away at the kind of facade of kirk i think they kind of they complicate him they they make him a much less um straightforward hero one way or another. And it's interesting, you know, thinking back on those 79 episodes of, of the original series, I mean, obviously the motion picture, you know, we had Gene Roddenberry heavily involved. We had, this was a kind of, um a, a lot of kind of work went into what, you know, the story that kind of he wanted to to tell there, I suppose. By the time you get to the Wrath of Khan, you've got a new director coming in, you know, you've got Nick Meyer coming in um, and both he and I think Half Bennett as well, going back to the original series and re-watching, uh, the whole of the original, you know, re-watching those 79 episodes, kind of looking for clues as to how do we do this? You know, what do we do with these characters? What do we do with these stories? What, you know, we're making Star Trek 20 years on. What does that mean? What is that going to look like? And actually going back and watching these original episodes and pulling out, you, you know, what's going to be the the key thing. And, and of course, with the Wrath of Khan, literally pulling out one of those episodes and saying, okay, we're going to do a direct sequel to this storyline. But at the same time, again, we're going to kind of we're going to do it in a very different way. So it's not going to feel, it's not in any way a kind of stylistic sequel to Space Seed. You know, it's a totally different world, totally different environment. You know, the look is different. The uniforms are different. Uh, the characters are different. You, you know, the breezy Kirk of the original series has been replaced by this kind of brooding, you know, unhappy, problematic character one way or another. But yet that came out of, you know, digging through the back catalogue and kind of, uh, you know, scouring it for what, what can we use as kind of inspiration for this new Star Trek going forward.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the... I mean, you know, when you look at the motion picture, which I do really enjoy in many for many reasons, but in terms of advancing character, it doesn't really do much. You know, it, it essentially... It transplants those characters from the original series, makes them a little, little bit more dour, and a little bit more like they've had to suffer through the seventies, I suppose. But it, it, it takes away a little bit of the, you know, youthful bravado that you see in, in some, and, 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 and deepens them in terms of age. But it doesn't do what the wrath of Khan does, which is to really dig in and there, particularly with Kirk and actually conf- have him confront his mortality and confront his middle age and do the kind of character work that in some ways it was ahead of its time, I think in in many ways you know it's the kind of thing that even the next generation wouldn't really do you know you for a lot of its characters it wouldn't really often pierce under the veil it would do these particularly you know character-centric standalone episodes but you never really often felt that they they particularly developed a lot of the time they maybe became warmer you know Picard steadily became warmer as a character you know and obviously with the Borg stuff you know you get some element of that but It doesn't really do that a lot in the series, much like the original series didn't really do it, you know, in the, in the, in in the format of episodes where that you would, the idea of all of these kind of shows is that you switch it on and the characters are recognizably the same characters week on week and you can enjoy these things out of sequence and all, all these kind of things, reasons they made television. And it's only really when you get to Deep Space Nine that you start to see characters change you know you look at most of the main characters in ds9 in emissary and you look at them in what you leave behind and they're very different people and and then that doesn't even really happen in voyager either you know it doesn't really happen in voyager um it happens to some extent in enterprise i think but you know what i'm saying is that i think the the, those movies particularly the wrath of khan and then the subsequent films that followed re re reconceptualizes those original series characters places them in middle age keeps the template of who they are but it also isn't afraid to shake them around a bit and have them not be exactly the same as they were. And I think that the best Star Trek is is the Star Trek for me that does that and isn't afraid to take the formula, take the basic template but change the the approach, change what you get out of it change you know and that's it's one of the reasons to go back to this one of the reasons that even if I don't necessarily think, Picard works as a piece of storytelling completely so far, halfway through, I think the way they've reconceptualized that character 20 years on is really interesting and it's really bold. And it's exactly the kind of thing that I want to see Star Trek doing with these legendary characters.
0: Yeah. And I think a big part of it comes down to change doesn't it i mean when you talk about ds9 and the and the sense that these characters are changing there's that line in the undiscovered country people can be very frightened of change i mean i suppose there's that there's always that kind of tendency to want to freeze things in the past and it's um can be threatening as well, you know, for fans, long-standing fans, or something to have something a character come back. I mean, something like the Picard show, generally speaking, has been pretty well received, I think. But you know, a lot of people are very anxious, I think, at the idea of that character coming back because if they had really dropped the ball and screwed it up, I mean, what well, we saw that with Star Wars, a lot of people felt, you know, with Luke Skywalker, they were very unhappy with the direction that he went in in the more recent uh, Star Wars sequels. There is that kind of danger if you bring someone back. It, it, there's a potential for it to be a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. You know, if they're just like they were before, then people will say they, you know, there's, it's not plausible. If they're too different, then people will be kind of threatened by that change potentially. But, you know, the change is absolutely, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of key. And you're right. I think DS9 is absolutely the series that shows the most kind of character development in its core characters, certainly over the course of the, uh, series so, certainly up till now. I mean, who knows? Maybe some of these future tracks will, um, will kind of even outclass uh, Deep Space Nine in in that department. Deep Space Nine, of course, also a series that was very much kind of involved in, I suppose, forging a slightly different relationship with the original series in the sense that while Next Gen had kind of ported over these individual characters, they they kind of had these these. uh moments where they would kind of, I suppose maybe in some ways Deep Space Nine was more allowing the original series to exist a bit more on its own terms in some ways, insofar as they would engage with something like the mirror universe, which you could say is a bit of a hokey original series type concept. And Deep Space Nine being this kind of slightly more serious, more kind of rational era of Star Trek, albeit with, you know, prophets and, you, you know, kind of mystical elements thrown in as well, uh, was willing to kind of go there and do these kind of um quite sort of schlocky episodes in a way set in in a kind of uh sandbox that is very much not the Star Trek sandbox, if you know what I mean, and to kind of throw themselves into that. Obviously, we went back there with Discovery, and we went back there with Enterprise as well. But, but in both those cases, I think with an element of the kind nostalgia attached to it, and so on. I mean, you know, particularly with Enterprise when they did the Mirror Universe, it's basically an excuse to kind of do uh, a, a TOS TOS uh, kind of riff one way or another. Get everyone in the old costumes, get them on the old bridge, you know, all that sort of thing. DS Nine was sort of engaging with it more. You know, it was updating it. It was kind of continuing that story, but also sort of accepting the sort of schlocky, campy qualities of it, I suppose. Um, In a way that even something like Discovery, Discovery is kind of determined to pull the mirror universe into the present somehow. I mean, Deep Space Nine does that in its own way, I suppose. But it, it seems to kind of really revel in it and to really kind of enjoy the kind of absurdity of it if you know what i mean even to the point that you've got that final mary episode in ds9 with the ferengi and they and rom keeps saying you know it's you know if this is this then this you're sort of trying to puzzle out the rules of it which patently are kind of you know kind of stupid one way or another but absolutely there's that kind of um relish for that DS9 of course also you know brings back uh, other legacy characters you know the Klingons in Blood Oath for example fantastic original series characters brings them back and in the case of Core you know brings him back several times and gives him some quite meaty storylines
1: it is funny actually now you mentioned that about how DS9 sort of tries to engage in sort of the pulpy aspects of TOS because it almost feels like the next generation felt like it couldn't quite do that you know, I mean, it's telling that, that, that Next Gen never had a, a mirror episode, you know, and you're only actually seeing them have a mirror episode now, uh, well, have a, have a mirror story in the comics, you know, the tying kind of comics, which are doing lots of mirror stories with the Next Generation crew. But it's the kind of thing you never, you could never quite imagine working on screen. And I think it's because they were. I don't think, I don't know if buttoned up is the right word, but a bit more formal and a little bit more, you know, philosophical and and poised in the way they told their stories. Whereas DS9 is a little bit more ramshackle. It's a little bit more, you know, throw caution to the wind. Cisco is a far more impulsive, romantic, dynamic kind of commander and then captain than Picard was. Far more quick to temper in many ways, you know. And, and I think it sort of, it fits the d s nine world world really well, that kind of pulpy sort of storytelling and that you know being able to tap into that t o s kind of vibe and and it 's surprising actually given given that d s nine is covering a hell of a lot of different things you know geopolitics and a whole web of characters and and is probably the most alien quote unquote star trek series that 's ever existed in terms of the you know the myriad amount of races and the fact that it doesn't really have a lot of connections always to Earth and that kind of thing, you know, especially in the early days. So to do that is really interesting, I think, and the way it manages to tap into those aspects of TOS. And I hadn't really thought of it like that before, but it really does. It gets the joy of it, I think. And and I think also, you know, even those
0: Klingons, the, the joy with which it brings back these characters, you know, despite the massive kind of continuity issue that they obviously look nothing like, what they looked like in the original series. You know, they, they don't really care. It's more just about, you know, let's get these guys back. And there is that kind of real sense of the kind of TOS fanboys working on DS9, uh, being able to kind of fulfil some of these fantasies one way or another, you know, to the point where obviously by the time you get to Trials and Tribulations, it's absolutely a kind of, you know, that episode is a sort of dream come true. And you've got Cisco kind of standing in for the fan, uh, you know, getting Kirk's autograph basically at the end of the episode. You've also got, I mean, I've always sort of thought far beyond the stars in a way is it's an episode that is kind of about the creation of Star Trek, one way or another. I mean, you've got, for a start, you've got the character played by Nana Visitor, who is called Casey Hunter. Is it you? you know, yeah, kind of an echo of DC, DC Fontana. Fontana yeah. I know mean, there was. She was also kind of based on another science fiction writer who worked with her husband and so on. But you know, the definite kind of echo there. And you've got this kind of central question of like, how do you how do you get the stories that you want to tell? Uh, in front of, you know, the people you want to read them. So in Far Beyond the Stars, you've got this kind of conceit that if, if this imagined future with the Black Commander is the dream of a shoeshine boy, then it's going to be okay. Then it's going to kind of pass the censorship somehow a kind of inversion in some ways of, you know, what Roddenberry was trying to do. Okay, he couldn't tell these stories about racism in the in the armed forces, in the lieutenant, the lieutenant, sorry, I should say, but he could do it in Star Trek. You know, you could use the kind of allegorical, you could use the kind of uh, distance provided by doing things in a, in a science fiction context to kind of get these themes and these kind of uh, topics out there one way or another. So there's, there's definitely a kind of sense, you, you know, and Benny Russell is this kind of creative mind who's basically dreaming up Deep Space Nine. Albeit it's a slightly different era, you know, it's slightly earlier era. But I think that episode is absolutely sort of leaning into a kind of a sort of mythology around the creation of Star Trek one way or another. Not in a totally direct way, but definitely, you you know, that I I would say is a big influence uh, on that episode as as much as, you you know, many other elements are as well.
1: Yeah, I know. I I think so, because even though, you know, Star Trek was wasn't created in necessarily quite the same era, it was you know playing off the back of the the boom in you know post war science fiction in American and movies and you know on on television and that kind of pulpy approach and i think it it then blends that up with the fact that you know star trek was airing the original series was airing in in that massive time of social change particularly in terms of civil rights movement and you know martin luther king and all of these you know advancements in terms of race relations and these flashpoints in terms of race relations and and all of these kind of you know conflicts that benny russell was facing you know with the characters like the character played by mark alamo you know and and i think it it knows what it's doing, definitely. It knows that it's sort of tapping into that. Like you say, that mythology is a good word, I think, that mythology of Star Trek. And having a distinctly sort of an original series feel, you know, and because obviously the original series was very fond of having, where it could, tapping into sort of a Earth period sort of context. You know, you only have to look at something like City on the Edge of Forever where, you know, you have that really out there sort of, Idea of the Guardian of Forever, but they still managed to spin it into sending Kirk and Spock back to like the Depression era, nineteen thirties, <laughs> you know, and have that kind of story. Where and and so when you get a period setting, an Earth period setting, where they can explore these, you know, these very um, particular topics. You know, in this case, race relations and all, and and science fiction the creation of science fiction and all these kind of things. It feels deliberate. It feels deliberately like something that the, the original series would have done without... Obviously, they wouldn't have told this story in that way, but do you know what I'm saying? They would have had that sort of tone to them, I think, and that texture, and I think that's a very original series kind of thing. And like you say, it comes a year after Trials and Tribulations, which is a love letter to that, you know, back for the 30th anniversary, wasn't it that? But uh, that love letter to the original series. So DS9 feels like, even though it's so really far removed in many ways from the original series, it's still it's almost like it wants to be connected to that past. It wants to be, you know, it wants to feel like it's it's part of that in many ways in a lot of the stories it tells.
0: And I suppose when you do get to Trials and Tribulations... It does feel like it gels. That's that's the weird thing. I mean, despite, again, the kind of incongruities, you know, you have that uh, kind of question of, you, you know, why do the Klingons look different? And Worf just kind of says, oh, we don't talk about that. And that's basically that's good enough. And you know, there's that element of like Deep Space Nine is willing to sort of d- dismiss the kind of technical problems of matching itself up with this 30 year old show in, in favour of... Well, you know, there are another kind of technical problems, I suppose. I mean, Trials and Tribulations was a massive technical achievement at the time. It was a great kind of, uh, you know, using this sort of forest Gump technology and all this kind of thing. But basically, in order to celebrate that bridge, I suppose, one way or another, to kind of recognise that bond and that link and that that kind of means something. And I just th- I think it's kind of interesting how much better that episode works than the Voyager Uh, anniversary episode flashback and it's not to bash flashback particularly I don't hate that episode but I just think it's not it it just that just feels like an episode which is you know if we're talking about these cameo episodes okay we've got relics for Scotty we've got you, you, you know whatever Okay, here we've got one for Sulu, and even among those episodes, I think it's probably going to be fairly near the bottom of the pile. And George Takei is great, and it's nice to see the Excelsior and so on. And maybe it's partly also that it's it's not really tapping into the same nostalgia because by this point, you know, the Undiscovered Country, which is the period we're going back to, is only, well, certainly less than a decade ago. Do you know what I mean? We're not really going. Uh, full-on nostalgic in a sense. Um, And we're not really connecting to something that is kind of iconically Star Trek because it it is, and this is something that definitely we'll come on to talk about with the kind of more recent Star Treks from 2009 onwards. The original series is the kind of iconography of Star Trek. If you, you know, even if you just say Star Trek, uh, you know, for many, many years now, that font is the original series font. That is the kind of branding for Star Trek, whatever, you know, whatever Star Trek might be doing, if you know what I mean. And I think there's that sense that, um, you know, Trials and Tribulations, they were absolutely managing to kind of anchor Deep Space Nine to that, to kind of build that link. When Voyager tried to do it, somehow it doesn't quite gel. I don't, I don't know if, if you would agree. It doesn't, as, even though, you know, okay, we've got two locks in kind of two places at once and that's that's our sort of link. It doesn't feel, it feels like there's a mismatch somehow, to me anyway. It doesn't feel like those two worlds kind of, click in the same way as you know next gen couldn't really click with the original series they had to sort of reframe it they had to rewrite it they had to kind of change you know bring original series characters into the kind of next gen universe i feel like maybe with flashback it just doesn't quite for me anyway it doesn't they don't quite sit together perfectly those those two worlds somehow
1: yeah no and i think i think the difference is that flashback is intentionally trying to to carve voyager a little place within the fabric of the undiscovered country, say, and it's trying to place Tuvok. Well, he's trying. It's trying almost to <laughs> to retcon, isn't it? Because Tim Russ was in that film as one of the Excelsior crew, so it's it's trying to do a retcon. No, yeah, no, he
0: was in. He was in Generations. He wasn't even in that film. That's the oh, other he? thing. he? was like, and it's. And I suppose it's a Bran and Braga episode as well. And Bran and Braga wrote Generations. Bran and Braga, I suppose, must have realised some. I mean, maybe unconsciously realised that Tim Russ was in Generations as a different character. He was, wasn't so he? It's, it's almost like a weird sort of um, I've got that
1: wrong you right I don't know whether
0: on on some no but I'd, I wonder whether unconsciously on some level that's the connection you're supposed to be sort of slipping into and of course the, he was serving on an Excelsior class ship uh, oh maybe. Were, is, is maybe maybe the Enterprise B isn't uh, but it is basically an Excelsior class ship yeah just, extra bits it's on the similar, side similar isn't, isn't it? it you know it's very similar situation but actually the wrong film
1: yeah <laughs> <You know. laughs> but yeah I, that, that, and that, I stand corrected there that's yeah but may, maybe maybe that's where Maybe that's part of it and and I, but I, th- I think it, it probably is in in that case more the fact that it's trying to find a way to tether Voyager to that existing original series sort of continuity. But it's not very graceful with it. It's sort of trying to wedge it in. And like you say, you know, had it, had it, had it maybe had Tuvok part of it, you know, that there was the long, there was long-held long calls for a Captain Sulu series, wasn't there, for years. You know, George Takai would talk it up. And much like Michael Dorn has done with a Captain Wharf series, you know, there's been lots of things about how, oh, it wouldn't have been great to have an Excelsior show. You know, what if instead Voyager had decided to do a story about – the, the, you know, set in, an, in, in essentially a Captain Sulu TV series and have Sulu be a bit older and have the si- had the situation change and have Tuvok be part of that, you know, that might have been a lot more interesting because then you're, you you can place Sulu in a slightly different context. You know, yes, the, the Undiscovered Country did do that given he got promoted and he got his own ship and that kind of thing, which was great. But, I feel like you could have done that, you know, or even had Sulu with his daughter, you know, there or something like that. And you you could, you could have played with that. You could have done something slightly different. You could have had Jacqueline Kim in there and all these kind of things. But it doesn't do that. It just tries to wedge it in. Whereas at least with DS9, when it's, when it's doing that similar sort of episode to celebrate the 30 years, it's, it's intentionally sort of weaving in between the trouble with tribbles, but it's doing it with a wink. It's doing it with far more of a wink of the eye and intentionally, almost working as a meta commentary, you know, on that. Whereas Flashback doesn't really do that. Flashback's just trying to tell this story within that box. You know, I mean, if anything, I think a more successful, even though it doesn't, it doesn't connect to the original series, but a more successful example of Voyager being a little bit more like the original series, is Future's End, the two-part episode where they end up back on Earth. That's a very TOS kind of story. Well, it's basically Star Trek IV, uh, <laughs> you know, Mark II, isn't it? Basically, yeah. But yeah. It, but it's it's a lot of fun. You know, it works it works really quite well, even though it's bar- it's bonkers in many ways, but it's, it's actually a lot of fun. So it sort of proved that it could do those kind of things, but it, it was never very it always found it a little bit awkward because it had, it both had the next generation sense of sort of emotional distance. And I think that sort of, you know, it was TNG without some of the gravitas Voyager a lot of the time, but it also tried to tell stories in, in its own particular way. It's why Voyager doesn't often have a sense for me, doesn't often have a sense of personality in the same way, you know, quite as the next generational deep space nine does. And I think when it tries to tap into the original series, that's one of the reasons it can't quite do it in its own sort of particular way. It's that sense.
0: It sort of needs, you need to know who you are in order to, it's almost, it reminds me in a weird way, you know, when Esri Dax joined Deep Space Nine, there's that episode where Garrick, who she's trying to help. (laughs) <laughs> says all these horrible things to him, which I've always thought for Nicole de Boer must have been like particularly difficult. This, you know, to have, like you're practically your first episode. Someone's basically saying, yeah, you're not as good as the old one. You know, what do you think you're doing here? You know, you're a kind of an imposter basically. And he says to her at one point, you don't even know who you are. And, you know, maybe there's that element of, um, you know, Next Gen would engage with original series in its way, which was slightly protective of itself to some extent in terms of the way it would kind of, Frame things, or, or kind of put those characters in a bubble almost, or kind of find ways of, of incorporating them. DS9 very confident, I would say, in its own identity. Maybe part of the thing is Voyager was always a little bit unsure about what show it was. You know, I'd, I'd say its identity is a bit less clear maybe than than any of those three shows that kind of preceded it, one way or another. I mean, in many respects, Voyager is the most original series of the nineties Trek shows. You know, they're out on the frontier. They're kind of, you you, you know, uh, they've got more kind of autonomy in some ways in the way that Kirk's Enterprise often seems to have sort of more autonomy, less in the way of kind of orders coming through. A bit more kind of action adventure in terms of the kind of storylines. Janeway, as I've said, in some ways, I mean, Janeway is a slightly puzzling character because, you, you know, some people would say she's quite an inconsistent character in, in various ways. But certainly one core aspect of her character, I think, is a kind of belief in sort of gut feeling and a sort of, you know, quite a sort of gutsy personality compared to someone like Picard, who seems much more kind of measured and thinking things through and so on. Um And in that, I think she has a kind of bit of an echo of Kirk in her. I mean, by the time you get to the end of Voyager, you have a couple of Kirk references. I think in like season seven, there are a couple of episodes where someone name drops Kirk for one reason or another. Uh, Icheb, funnily enough, since we, we brought him up before, I'm pretty sure we discover each chap has a bit of a Kirk fixation, you, you know, and he's kind of obsessed with these kind of legends of, of the original series. And in flashback, they try to sell the idea that Janeway also uh, sort of idolises these characters. She, she makes some comment about what it must have been like in those days of, you know, cowboys in space, basically, or whatever she says. I never quite bought that. I never quite really believed that Janeway would be particularly looking up to kirk i could believe it more of cisco i can i can buy that cisco's the one who's going to go and get kirk's autograph i don't imagine picard would have been especially impressed uh you know reading the exploits of kirk he'd probably be you know i don't know marking them up in the margins constantly and saying you know, he broke this rule and he broke that one yeah. then this was completely outrageous and he shouldn't have done that uh you know maybe riker would have um found a bit more that was sort of his liking one way or another. But I think Voyager, it, 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 it's tricky because in some ways it's it's bright like the original series. It's got that kind of bright, breezy quality that, you know, Deep Space Nine it, it didn't have because it went in a much darker direction, you know, both visually and kind of tonally. Next Gen kind of went in this quite sort of cool direction one way or another in in, in some respects, though, obviously that, that changed over time and so on. But Somehow, I I don't know, somehow those links don't feel as strong. Even when you get things like, you know, they're they're bringing in an old Klingon ship in um, the episode uh, Prophecy. I think so. Towards the end of Voyager. You you know, even when they're kind of really leaning on those kind of nostalgia buttons, it sort of feels a bit superficial to me, potentially. And maybe that is about who's writing the episodes and who's kind of, behind that and so on, because, I mean, Deep Space Nine, uh, you know, as we've said, it had a lot of real, proper, hardcore, original series fans writing that show. Voyager, I don't know if they did to the same extent. And by the time you get to Enterprise, you've got this weird situation where this is, on one level, an original series prequel being written by... The guy who was responsible for kind of next generation onwards, essentially Rick Berman, who was the kind of head honcho of that era, and Branham Braga, two guys essentially for whom Star Trek started with next gen.
1: I think I think there is there is a lot to be said about the, the kind of the writers and how they approach these kind of story storylines. I think, you know, I think. That it it felt like the the longer the the some of these shows went on, the more inclined they were to try and find ways to. Maybe, maybe they were a little bit afraid that they were moving too far away from what the original series was. You know, maybe, maybe they were a little bit afraid. You know, in 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 ep- some episodes of Voyager, that it was it was getting a little bit too distant, and I and I think you know, I mean. I know Darren Mooney has come on this show a lot and has talked about how Voyager is essentially trying to just get back, not just to the Delta Quadrant, but to the Alpha Quadrant, but also get back to, you know, an earlier era. And it's sort of stuck in that sort of groove. And I think, you know, it, it's, I I find it, 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 it there, there is, there is there, it doesn't quite work as well. And I think that's why... It almost feels like Enterprise was an an inevitability after this because they essentially then decided we've got to we've really got to try and get back to what the original series was. We're gonna we're gonna create something entirely from the ground up, and a lot of these same kind of writers who were writing on Voyager, you know, Braga, you know, with Berman and all these kind of people, and they they're gonna create from the ground up a show that is as close to the original series at that point as you could possibly get you know a world away from voyager not just literally in terms of time and and you know the age of star trek you know in the eras but in terms of being able to tell those stories as much as they can you know in that style so although although ironically then they end up telling season one and two of Enterprise. They end up telling stories in such a next generation style kind of way to lesser effect that it sort of negates the whole concept. It's only really when they get to season four and it essentially becomes a TOS like kind of show, you know, in many ways, or it's ta- certainly trying to act as a prequel to that stuff that it sort of, it sort of buys into that, that whole idea. So I just, I just, I don't know, I just find that they, that they maybe may more and more are trying to sort of look back to the earlier eras of Star Trek because they're afraid that if they get too far away from that in a way that people are going to be frustrated, which is which is strange because on the one hand you've always had this push pull I think of people who want Star Trek to really be something new and different and and challenge the boundaries, but then people who don't want that and they ultimately want it to sit within a certain box and I think that's still that's still a, an argument that goes around now with, with the new era. And, and it was certainly going around i think when you had voyager and then you had enterprise come out. Well with enterprise you've
0: got this weird uh, sort of ambivalence i think at the core of it. I mean a push pull is exactly the you know the right kind of word for it because you've got if you look at all the kind of early marketing stuff for enterprise they were very keen on the idea of you know we were going to kind of be back to rolling around and fisticuffs and the kind of, you know, that kind of TOS way of sorting out problems. I mean, you've got even in the first episode, Archer saying he wants to knock someone on their ass, you you know, this kind of, they're trying, there was a conscious desire to sort of go back in some ways to that kind of pre-next gen, the pre-perfect world of the the humans and, and the Vulcans as well, you know, to make the Vulcans less perfect as well. On the other hand, you know, Bran Braga clearly never wanted to do an original series prequel. I mean, he he says in interviews, he never saw Enterprise as a prequel to the original series. He saw it as a sequel to the present. In other words, it was a kind of new uh, science fiction series set in the kind of Star Trek universe. But essentially, the fact that it happened 100 years before Captain Kirk didn't, as far as he was concerned, mean it had anything to do with Captain Kirk. Uh, and you can kind of see that. And you're right, you know, in those early seasons... You get weird kind of next gen crossovers with, you know, Ferengi, Borg, you know, species turning up that really have no business being in, in Star Trek 100 years before Kirk, uh, and having to kind of find ways of kind of bringing those, bringing those elements in because those are the elements that kind of felt familiar and that desire to kind of bring in familiar characters. I mean, one thing Enterprise does do from quite early on, I'd say, which is a big departure, is bringing the Andorians because the Andorians were a very iconic uh, alien from the original series, you know, despite very limited screen time and bringing them back and really delving into that kind of culture and taking that quite seriously, I think is one of the great strengths of, you know, even if those early seasons of Enterprise and the Vulcans as well, as much as, you know, people for a long time were kind of wondering what's going on with the Vulcans, why have they changed the Vulcans? Uh, The Vulcans don't seem like the Vulcans we kind of know and love. Again, that was, I think, quite a serious attempt to sort of, I, I don't know, sort of investigate the kind of the, the the kind of cultures and the societies that make up the Federation one way or another. Of course, it does take until season four when, you know, we get the Tellarites in and we get to kind of do all of that properly and do this kind of birth of the Federation stuff or birth of the kind of pre-Federation stuff. But I guess even in those early seasons, there, there are at least these gestures. And I think maybe the Andorians is the most successful element that's kind of brought in from the original series there. But you're right. Absolutely. By the time you get to season four, and I have to say, I mean, I've said this before for me, season three is season of enterprise. I enjoy the most because I think it's the one where that show is trying to do something new, trying to do something different. And I feel like they kind of up their game a bit. And it's, it's patchy. You, you know, it's, it's not a kind of unqualified masterpiece, but it feels like they're definitely pushing the boundaries a bit rather than retreading old ground. Season four, in some ways, as much as I enjoy it, it does feel, it leans a little bit too heavily for my money into the kind of fan service realm. And I I do enjoy, I do really enjoy pretty much all of those episodes, but it's very much geared towards um, the show that they could have made three years earlier. That's what it feels like. It feels like new showrunners come in and said basically, well, if I'd been allowed to make this show you know, from the get go, this is what it would have been, and so you get, you know, Orions. You get, uh, we go back to Vulcan and Vulcan's forge, and that you, you, obviously we've seen Vulcans throughout Star Trek. But actually, spending a lot of time on Vulcan, you get the Organians coming back in Observer effect. You get uh, original series Klingons coming back in the Klingon uh, episodes. You, you know this. I would say totally unnecessary explanation of trying to sort of resolve canon, but it also means we get to see those kind of original series Klingons that no one has been giving us, uh, you know, since they were kind of, um, <laughs> since we all pretended they never existed. Um, and we even get with the Tellarites and so on, you know, we get this kind of uh, return to Babel
1: essentially one way or another. And this kind of formation of the kind of nascent federation. It's funny. Cause I, on, on the one hand, that's great. You know, and that's the thing. When Manikoto came in to sort of help rescue Enterprise, really, in Season 3, and then uh, really sort of took the reins heavily more in Season 4, he he came in as a massive Star Trek fan. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, there's obviously a whole conversation people are having about just how much you know, the the, the the stewards of new, you know, new Star Trek, people like Alex Kurtzman and Kirsten Beyer are massive Star Trek fans. And, you know, it's well known that Kurtzman, for instance, didn't necessarily grow up with it in the same way that maybe Kirsten Beyer did, you know, and these kind of people. And you can see that there are, you know, certain people maybe have more of a deep, in deep knowledge of canon and Star Trek than others do. But, you know, and that's the thing, Manny Koto knew this inside out he knew the original series inside out so the storylines he told an enterprise like like you've just well explained very well resolved canon found areas that, that warranted more explanation. Created entire stories around them. Got into the lore and the depth and the mythology of things that you know were only casually thrown off in the sixties. You know things like Surak and you know all the all these kind of things that that, that back then they didn't they didn't explore because they didn't. That's not how they kind of told stories. You know it wasn't done in that it's the same kind of way. But this is Enterprise Series Four is the closest you'll ever get to original series fan fiction. And the new and that's why really when Discovery particularly in season two, when that very much leans into the the original series, it's not the same because it's actually being written by people who, I don't think they know that that stuff quite to the depth that Manikoto knew in Enterprise. And they're not necessarily writing to fill in canon. If anything, at times, they're completely trampling over it or they are bending it for their own purposes. And that's very different to... Creating a season of television from the ground up which is filling in gaps and it's very much aware on a sort of meta level that this this is going to be analyzed not just in terms of stories but in terms of how does this map onto what people accept as a continuity, which is obviously very very key in Star Trek but the new era of Trek in going back to the original series doesn't really have that same approach whereas Mm -hmm. Enterprise (coughs) more than any of the others you know DS9 like we say sort of tapped in and, and did it with more of a tongue in cheek the next generation took a lot of the characters and did new things with them in this new era you know Voyager sort of tried to do both and sort of wedged in between those two but Enterprise very much is trying to resolve canon and resolve continuity and that makes it different and that makes it on the one hand that fourth season is incredibly fun And it is kind of the show you kind of wish they'd made from the beginning. But at the same time, it has no real identity of its own by that point. Enterprise is purely there to service the canon and the continuity of the original series, I think, in many ways. And in some ways, you could say that the
0: two-parter in A Mirror Darkly is almost the kind of epitome of that, because I've always had a real problem with that episode. I've never enjoyed that episode the way that other people enjoy it. And I think part of it is the fact that it's not an episode of Star Trek Enterprise. I mean, it, you know, and they emphasise this by giving us the different credits and so on. It's an, ep- it's an episode of a different TV show. And I just think, I don't mind the Mirror Universe episodes of DS9 or Discovery or, or whatever. I think in various ways, they, they wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it wouldn't have been my choice to spend so much of Discovery's first season in the Mirror Universe. But I think they do something interesting with it and they kind of know what they're doing. But for me, the mirror universe stories only work because there is a crossover, because there is a kind of relationship between these two universes. And to have this story... Okay, okay, so there is a crossover in the sense that the Defiant ended up there. So there's a kind of... There's a ship that's from the wrong universe, uh, which is very convenient because it allows them to play dress up and get on the bridge of the ship and basically pretend, as far as you know, we're all concerned, that they're on the Enterprise. But there's no... That there isn't the kind of interaction between the two universes that in terms of characters there are no characters kind of displaced or out of place and therefore for me it's it's totally disposable do you know what I mean and it's kind of like other than as an exercise in fan service and yes you know now we can do a Gorn in CGI and now we can do this and we can get Scott Bakula in a, you know, original series rap and so on. I, I I just, I don't really see the point of that episode. It feels like, it feels hollow to me. Do you know what I mean? And I know that, like, I obviously have, you you know, I don't know, I I feel like I'm like the guy with no sense of humor or whatever. Everyone else loves that episode and (laughs) thinks it's great. Uh, And it's their favorite episode of Enterprise or whatever. I'm just like, yeah, this does absolutely nothing for me. Uh, And it's not because I don't love Star Trek and I, you know, don't love the original series or, you know, all that stuff, whatever it is. It's just that for me, it doesn't do anything that interests me really with it uh it's just a kind of assemblage of tropes is i suppose how i feel about it um it's a gimmick i'm aware that's maybe it's a gimmick exactly it, it's a gimmick, you know, gimmick maybe really. that's a minority view but some of those other episodes I, I don't mind so much i mean you know going back to the augments again and kind of you know going back to again going back to space seed and khan and so on i quite like those episodes i quite enjoy them i mean i mean it, there's a lot to enjoy in that season it captures some of the kind of fun of the original series as well. In a sense, it's kind of, it's the most fun uh, season of Enterprise. But as I say, for me, it's less interesting than the third season, even though in some ways it's more accomplished in various ways than the third season. I just, I, I really enjoy the third season because I feel they're kind of, they're doing something new. And, you know, maybe it's not Star Trek anymore. Who knows? You know, people always argue, this is Star Trek, this isn't Star Trek, et cetera. You know, maybe that was an example of Star Trek kind of pushing the boundaries a bit and saying, okay, we're going to do something that you're. Not necessarily going to be totally comfortable with, but you know, let's try it and kind of, you know, let's see, let's see what happens. Let's see what's well, out there. Well, you know, well, uh, yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> I mean, people, people. <laughs> For me, that kind of worked in some. Yeah, ways. no, yeah. Um, you know, people talk about dark trek now with new trek and you know, section thirty one and you know, the the Romulan supernova and Picard. You know, bloody Enterprise season three. I mean, season two ends with. A, an apocalyptic death of millions. You know, it, season three of Enterprise is very much in response to nine eleven. You know, it is it is absolutely Star Trek time to trying to resolve the trauma of that event, which had happened like a year or two before that episode that, that season premiered. You know, and it's it, it it is very very dark stuff. That whole mission into the Delphic Expanse. You know, is is absolutely doing stuff that. It, 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 the, the, the trek we know we, that people are conflicted on today and how it's not necessarily what Star Trek was was doing then. it was just doing it in more of a sort of 90s sort of template style in many ways than than the more serialized nature of what we, what we've got today was doing and, and it, it was pushing boundaries and it was taking a lot of the established original series formulas of enterprise. I mean you know you only have to look at the the the, the main triumvirate, you know Archer. Trip and T'Pol are essentially Kirk, Spark, and Bones. Really, in many ways, they are—they are, they are those—they are those characters. You know, they're—they're they're, they're essentially the same archetypes. And 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 a lot of Enterprise, much like a lot of Star Trek, we revolved around those three. The original series, a lot of Enterprise revolves around the same those three key characters, and the rest of the cast occasionally get their own little bits to do. But it's more about those three. But Enterprise then really does attempt in that third series to rip it up but it i mean for that show it was just a bit too little too late and that can the cancellation of that show i mean it's it's, it's funny how it mirrors the the original series and that the original series was cancelled and the enterprise which is the closest to that in many ways in terms of time and what it's trying to do gets cancelled as well but it was it was just too little it was different reasons but it was too little too late i think for that show you know i think fundamentally that show should have started in many ways with something a bit bolder or something just a little bit more in love with the whole connection to the original series and just embracing that more than it did. Cause it starts with that sort of weird, like we say, push pull disconnect, but there's no doubt in my mind that that, that show begins that sort of process of completely going back to the original series. Because by the time you get to the 2009 movie, i mean we're there aren't we it's it's we've rebooted (laughs) so that that process is
0: there enterprise is like the that's an interesting way of looking at it enterprise is the kind of leading uh to that moment of (laughs) the computers crash you you know like the computer's kind of falling apart we're going to have to reboot (laughs) and then you know (laughs) that's that's kind of we get cancellation switch you know switch it off and on again we switch it off for a few years and then (laughs) then we bring it back on uh and, and we've got this kind of new version of star trek suddenly you know hopefully i mean you 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 raise this spectra of, you know the original series being cancelled Enterprise being cancelled you know for being too much like the original series potentially uh, although I don't think that's why it was cancelled at all I mean this doesn't bode very well for the potential for this Captain Pike series that everyone is so excited about (laughs) you know maybe that's going to be the one that sinks the kind of uh, current uh, (laughs) you know iteration of Star Trek one way or another because that again is absolutely that idea of kind of going back to the familiar going back to the uh, you know going back to the original series in in a very big way But you're right, I think that's something that that really started in 2009 with that movie and with the way that that movie kind of reconceptualized in a massive way what Star Trek was and what Star Trek could be as a brand uh, and sort of how to sell that to an audience and how to kind of make that more mainstream than maybe it had become, you know, by the time Enterprise went off the air.
1: It's interesting, really, that they went back. I think that's that's one of the big things when I think about 2009 and how... They they made that choice by that point to not just reboot Star Trek, but just completely start again, and and a controversial choice. I mean, I I remember at the time everyone was very unsure about that, and and I think the 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 only way that they managed to sell it to people was that they intentionally tied it into the original continuity. You know, you had old Spock, you had that time travel aspect. They weren't. It wasn't just a complete direct reboot. There, it did have that in that tether into the original continuity, which meant that that wasn't completely sacrificed. It was a very smart move because if they hadn't done that and they just decided to start again, I think it would have been really difficult for people, especially given that in fact that reboot series hasn't really had the traction that I think maybe they thought it would. You know, I th- I, I think it did. They've, they've done pretty well at the box office, you know, although beyond was a bit of a disappointment, which I think is one of the reasons we haven't really had star Trek four in that continuity, but even with like the A-list cast, even with the massive budgets, you know, and and you know, big directors and this kind of thing, I don't really think those films have struck a chord in terms of the public consciousness in the way that the earlier movies did. You know, the, the particularly beloved earlier movies like, you know, Wrath of Khan, Voyage Home, Undiscovered Country, First Contact. You know, which maybe didn't quite have the reach beyond Star Trek fandom that these films possibly did. And while these films, you know, mostly are fairly well received, particularly the 2009 one, I don't know if going back to the original series and starting again with those characters truly worked in that, yes, they did a good job, but I think it proved to me, much as I do enjoy all of them, and I do, even Into Darkness, it's not the same. You know, it just isn't the same ever. You know, when you when you watch those those characters, as great a job as they do, it is not the same as watching William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly. And it never will be. And that's, that's part of the problem, I think. And it's one of the reasons I think they've kind of started just to go back now into television, back to the original continuity to some extent, or to a major extent, and back to actually the original characters, the original actors for some of these things, as we're now seeing in Picard. And they're embracing that a bit more as opposed to, you know, thinking that they could recapture the spirit of the original series with new people in a new paradigm. Well, that's interesting. I mean,
0: I'm not the biggest fan of the Kelvin movies. I I do enjoy them. At least two of them. I enjoy quite a lot. I don't, I appreciate them because I think that we might not be getting the other Star Trek that we're getting now without them. So I appreciate they did some good on a kind of commercial level. They they brought new fans in, which is great. And that's really important. They're not really my Star Trek, essentially. I mean, Couple this is not... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's not to say that I don't enjoy them. I mean, I, I did really enjoy Beyond, particularly at the cinema. But they're not exactly my... Cup of tea, yeah. But that's not to to denigrate them. That's not to say they didn't do a good job. I mean, I think they, they did tick a lot of boxes one way or another. I mean, it's interesting, you know, they, they went back to the original series. They went back... You, you know even to the five year mission do you know what I mean to get them in the in the situation of and even to make a joke of it and beyond about life having become episodic because they basically taken this film franchise and thrown it into an episodic TV template somehow or, or at least tried to pretend that that's going on kind of it sort of in between the movies somehow in some ways I still think it was a slightly weird decision but it obviously paid off and people loved it I'm relieved that they didn't end up you know for years they were talking about doing the same thing with the next generation and reboot and you know who's going to play Data and all this stuff and I was just thinking oh my god you know, this will just, you know, uh, I will find that really depressing. If, if someone reboots Next Generation, I would find that really depressing. I didn't mind so much they did it with the original series because I think they had this idea that somehow these characters were so iconic that they could sort of transcend those performances. And I guess, you know, the same thing we've seen with Discovery, you know, having a new Spock and everything. And, you know, I don't mind that. He, Ethan Peck for me is never going to be Leonard Nimoy, but he's, you know, he's He's good. I, I like, I like all the Spock's actually in their own ways, but it is hard to, <laughs> you kind of got the original and best out there. You know, it's hard for anyone to kind of, um, sort of live up to that one way or another. But I think that 2009 movie as well, you know, it did reinvigorate interest in Star Trek. I mean, we wouldn't be having this kind of new renaissance of Star Trek in a sense without that. But it did also, for an entire decade, set a template for Star Trek that Star Trek was the original series. And its I think it's only Patrick Stewart who was able to break that kind of stranglehold, in effect, that the original series, therefore retrospectively in this kind of weird, nostalgic, retro way, had on what Star Trek could be. And I used to find that kind of slightly frustrating. I mean... You know, we've talked before. I don't want to kind of rehash uh, our beef with season two of Discovery, but you know, even from the get-go, Discovery—you uh, know—bringing in this character who was Spock's sister, uh, setting itself kind of just before the original series. I mean, Bran and Braga could say, "Well, it's a hundred years before. That's not a prequel." Discovery can't really claim it's not a prequel, and certainly in that second season, absolutely leans into the sense that it's a. Not so much a prequel, but a kind of parallel story, uh, to the original series. Once you've got, you know, Pike and Spock and, uh, number one and so on. And of course, you know, inevitably, I mean, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but if they don't end up doing this Pike series, I think, you know, uh, we'll all be pretty surprised. Uh, for me, that's almost the, the one that I'm least, as much as I liked all of them, it's the one that I'm kind of least interested in seeing. But, you know, for, Good or for bad, Star Trek Discovery leaned heavily into the kind of original series thing. Now, interestingly, just at the point that Picard is kind of breaking that stranglehold, Discovery is shooting off into the future and is going to have to totally reinvent itself as a show that is not... uh you, you know, it can't be all about that stuff. It can't all be about Burnham's adoptive family because, you know, she's never going to see any of them again. I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll get flashbacks or whatever. On the other hand, I suppose for me, the, the stuff that I did like about that... I did quite like the family dynamic stuff. I mean, I don't know whether I would have chosen to make her Spock's sister, but having done that, I liked what they did with Sarah and Amanda. I mean, my favourite episode of Discovery, I think, of the first two seasons is Lethe, because I think that is Lethe, an example yeah. of like doing continuity in a really subtle, clever, uh, intelligent way. I mean, I've talked about it before. That episode literally kind of made me gasp when I realised what, What they were doing and what they, uh, that kind of revelation that Sarek had to choose, and that suddenly this gives us a kind of, uh, an insight into that 50 year history of, you know, difficult relationship between Sarak and Spock and so on. I just think it was brilliant. I think that's an inspired way of like tying yourself into previous Star Trek. The stuff in season two for me felt a little bit more. I don't know, by the numbers, somehow. I did quite enjoy... Uh, you know, there was that one episode that had a previously on Star Trek montage. And they basically, yeah. you know, jumped back that 50 years to the original series. Yeah. And, and what I liked about that was it was cheesy. They did it in a kind of cheesy way. I mean, it's quite interesting, actually, watch- because I-, I-, I rewatched uh this afternoon in the beginning of that episode to kind of remind myself. They do it all in quite a cheesy way. They kind of... um They, they have these... You know, funky screen wipes and stuff. They kind of ramp up the TOS music to kind of give it a lot of energy and so on. And then they shift very quickly from kind of, you know, from kind of, uh, Jeffrey Hunter Pike to Anson Mount Pike and shift the tone almost instantly, uh, into, into a slightly different mood and slightly different show and everything. And somehow I think that works quite well. I think maybe it works quite well because they're kind of acknowledging. In a way, by like by playing it up, by by having that previously on Star Trek up on the screen and by playing this old footage and by acknowledging again a bit like with DS9, by acknowledging, yes, this is not the same actor in the previously as it is in this. I mean, you'd never do that in say in a soap opera where you've recast an actor, or even like in Star Trek where you've recast an actor. We're not getting clips from a measure of a man now that we've got a new Bruce Maddox in Picard. You know, you would try to uh disguise that. You'd try to sort of be a bit coy around it. Whereas I feel like Discovery there was just saying, yeah, we know, okay, this is, you know, everyone knows these are different actors. These are the same characters. Everyone knows the ship looks different. Everyone knows we've, you know, we've updated it all. It doesn't look, uh, it's it's not like when they recreated the original series, Bridge, um in Next Gen, in Deep Space Nine, uh, in Enterprise. You know, when they do that in Discovery, they've reinvented it, they've redesigned it. You know, that's the approach these days. It's not about that kind of perfect kind of uh, recreation of the past. And I feel like for me, they kind of earned a bit of credibility as much as, you know, we talked about how I wasn't wild about some of the kind of Pike-Spock, uh, you know, all that aspects of Discovery season two. Uh, I liked that moment and I I, I felt like they kind of, um, they sold it by kind of acknowledging in a sense that link to the past and, and the and the kind of, slightly tenuous nature of it the fact that it's it's never it's not going to be a kind of perfect fit it's not going to kind of gel perfectly in the way that in some ways arguably like enterprise was sort of trying to you know like like you were saying sort of fit everything in perfectly albeit with slightly you know better makeup designs and, and so on
1: well i mean you only have to look at the a mirror in a mirror darkly which you mentioned earlier as an example of how that that episode goes out of its way to recreate the, uh, I know it's not the Enterprise, but the Enterprise-style bridge, you know, from the 60s completely. Whereas in Discovery, and one of the things I like the most about Discovery Season 2 was the fact they do update that bridge and they give it a modern sheen. And it's great and it looks really, really good. And it, and it acknowledges the fact that in, if for it to tonally, and this is an argument I had with a few people at the time, who were frustrated at that. And I said, yeah, but tonally it would look really strange if they shifted from the style of the show and the way they filmed this show and suddenly gave you a 60s-style bridge, which looks really kitsch and looks really old. You know, it's a bit like when Scotty in Relic steps onto the bridge on the holodeck, and it really draws your attention to how 60s and kitsch it looks in 1992 or whatever it was. You know, imagine that suddenly shifting. You know, people don't realize how weird that would have been and how odd that would have been, and how much it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have sold what you were being, what you were trying to do. So it was a really canny choice, and I think one of the things that the Discovery has been aware of, and it, it, this is where it plays off the back of the, the the reboot series, even though it's a different continuity, is that the original series is iconic in a way that in terms of the the, the language of television and the, and the the iconography of what Star Trek is in the mind of people globally it is that original series in many ways still even if you've never watched all of it you know i think really if you ask most people to visualize what Star Trek is they will probably see that almost that kind of 60s style and i think they were aware of that when they remade Star Trek you know, that's why they didn't try and remake The Next Generation, you know. They could have, in theory, they could have done that in 2009, but they didn't. You know, they they decided to, you know, or well, they could have just made another Next Generation film, but they didn't. You know, they went back to something that visually has a certain language in our culture, in in popular culture, of culture of the last 50 years. And they know that that's important, I think, for... For storytelling, particularly in this modern era, which is all about nostalgia, it is all about looking back, and that's and that's where I I was frustrated with Discovery, as I've talked about in this podcast, in that how it, it lent a bit too much into the nostalgia. In a different way, to our enterprise was fan fiction, and was acknowledging it was fan fiction. And I think there is there is a contrast, there is a difference in that they're all trying to do the same thing, in that they're all trying to sort of get back to that '60s show. But I think Enterprise just sort of in the end embraced that whereas I think Discovery wants to be both. I think it wants to be challenging and new and fresh and its own thing but I think at the same time it really wants to still be the original series and I think one of the reasons it doesn't always work is that it can't quite get that balance right and and that's why now I think there is this debate as to where the whole franchise is going to go because it feels like what the new stewards of it are doing are not trying to just remake the original series each, each time they're trying to come at the universe from a different lens. So they're coming at it from, you know, spies or they're coming at it from, you know, a ramshackle crew or whatever. And they're doing these different approaches with it. So, it's quite how they end up with that and where they go, which will be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I
0: mean, funnily enough, Clara and I were talking about this a couple of days ago that, yes, they're, they're so far at least, they're very much the only one of these new series that really is, you know, going forward with Discovery going into the future and being this presumably kind of ship adrift or alone or kind of, you know, out of, out of time anyway. The only Star Trek show, I think, going forward that is going to have essentially a Starfleet mission at the centre of it is Lower Decks, which is a spoof of 90 Star Trek shows. Do you know what I mean? It's basically it's an animation and it's kind of piss take of next gen DS9 Voyager, you know, that era of Star Trek, which is weird. You, you know, it's a very, it's a big departure for Star Trek. I mean, we've been talking a lot recently online about, you know, violence in Star Trek, swearing and you know, all this stuff that's kind of changing with the new Trek that we're getting. But this is quite a big decision that they they found all these different ways around not doing a kind of traditional Star Trek show where you have a Starfleet ship and a kind of Starfleet crew and they're going out, you you know, uh, boldly going where no one's been before. But then there's this looming specter of Pike, which is, you you know, always seems to be kind of on the horizon, bring it back. And Pike very much, in the original series you know, reimagined mould. And in some ways, maybe it's the perfect way to do it. Because yes, you've got you've got Spock and he's a familiar character and so on. But in a way, you've got Pike who is much more like Kirk than Jeffrey Hunter's Pike was, if you know what I mean. Anson Mount's Pike is is sort of somewhere in between somehow. He's got the charm of Kirk. He's got the kind of likable quality of Kirk in a way that Jeffrey Hunter's Pike uh, didn't really. Um, So you've almost got, I suppose... I suppose another way of looking at it is it's the original series that might have been on one level, isn't it? You know, it's the adventures of that crew that we never got to see because, you know, those network executives back in 1964 or 65 or whenever it was said, yeah, we don't like this guy. We don't think this worked out quite right. And who knows, maybe maybe some of that nostalgic stuff, maybe maybe some of the things that, you know, for you and me didn't quite sit so well in Discovery Season 2 because that was a show that was trying to sort of be a servant to two masters. Maybe if they really lean into it with Pike and that's the identity of the show, it might work better in an odd way. I mean, I like Anson Mount. I like Ethan Peck. You know, I I I like the design of that ship. You know, there is a lot to, there's a lot of appeal there. My only reservation is it does feel a little bit like Retreading familiar ground. I'd slightly rather we were getting a kind of more traditional Star Trek show, but in a new, you know, kind of going forward. But, but maybe, you know, with what we've seen in Picard, you know, the universe in Picard seems a lot bleaker than it was back when we were watching Trek in the 90s. And maybe it's harder to, what well, you know, what's the mission for Starfleet by this point? It is, I mean, we've seen some pretty dodgy characters in Starfleet and Picard, you know, it's the whole of, presumably not the whole of Starfleet is kind of corrupt from top to bottom, if you know what I mean. But it's, um, it's tricky because they they've kind of reconceptualized Starfleet as almost the antagonists in Picard. So maybe they can't quite bring them in as the heroes again in that same time period. But but it's interesting, you know, we'll, we'll have to see and we'll see what the Pike show, assuming it comes along, does and, and what kind of impact that has. But I think you're right as well that in our sort of culture more generally, I mean, we've been looking at how the original series, those 79 episodes impacted on future Star Trek. They've also impacted on culture more generally, massively. I mean, when you get kind of Star Trek-y spoof things, it's nearly always the original series that gets spoofed. You know, when Black Mirror did that kind of Star Trek episode it was an original series uh spoof something like galaxy quest is very much a kind of original series i mean it's slightly different cuz it seems a bit uh, slightly later in time but the tropes are very much kind of original series tropes that are being spoofed there that's sort of uh on some level i think you're right star trek is those 79 episodes just as much as it isn't
1: i think culturally we will always we will always end up back there i think it all we'll, we'll always go back there in some senses and i think That's part. That's part of the beauty of it. I think you know all these different shows and all all the all the turns they take and all the different eras they embrace. I think the fact if they can always have one little bit of a foot in that original seventy nine, I think. It will, be some, it will continue to be a really special kind of franchise, I think.
0: Well, I think that's a really great sort of positive note to end this celebratory episode on really recognising that as much as Star Trek moves with the times, as much as we move forward, those 79 episodes are always going to be a real uh, cornerstone of what this franchise was, is and will be, one way or another. Um, thank you, Tony, as ever, for, for joining me. It's been a pleasure having you back on board. Pleasure. Thank you, as always, Duncan. And we'll look forward to having you back again sometime soon but the 79 episodes of the original series of star trek are not the only thing we've been discussing here on trek fm this week although i imagine there are at least a couple of other podcasts that might have been discussing them recently (laughs) Uh, so here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network previously on trek.fm to the journey I were writing Voyager right now, like reconceiving it, I would make each season like a different decade, like show the progression of time over 70 years. See, we could have just done that with Kes as a character, though. I know I said it probably a million times in the last five episodes. Kes could have shown us what that would have been mm-hmm. within the seven-year period. So, you know, we all know my opinions on Kes and how much I liked the character.
1: Earl Grey. Okay, Amy, your ice. Eyes- pick. <laughs> what is that number?
0: Hit <laughs> me to the nth power Ugh. pick. I, yeah. imagine, I imagine it at the square root of minus one.
1: Negative one.
0: Yeah. Mm, okay.
1: Literary tricks. You know, there's all this backstory as you're starting to learn in the show about what happened um, between Nemesis and the Picard show. And and so there was all this backstory. You couldn't really show it all in the show. Um, you don't want to. The show's about what's going on in the present time of the show but you know star trek since its origin has always had um ancillary materials that flesh out these stories so and we knew that would be the case here
0: the line a star trek picard podcast 99 percent of the time star trek tech makes sense this does not to me okay okay Chrissy, like S- star trek has asked me to
1: believe some pretty ludicrous things <laughs> this takes yeah. the cake Okay. Think so. All right, this we're on the same the page. K- so. This is completely. More, more than uh, going warp 10 turns you
0: into lizard? More than lizard yeah. babies. <laughs> really? More than spot turning into a baby lizard. This, I'm just like, what are you trying to feed me here? That's interesting because I believe this a lot more than those other things.
1: But. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Baga's evolution theories are much more believable than this. <laughs> no, they really not. <laughs> but yeah. And that's what else is happening on Trek.FM.
0: Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe, and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek FM, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, To get all the details, perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at, at AJ Black Writer. You're blended, all right.